welcome to the podcast, uh, Lily Alexander. Um, would you, yeah, just be able to introduce yourself a little bit for uh, some of the audience that I guess wouldn't wouldn't know exactly what you do? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, cool. Uh, my name's Lily. I am from the city of Montreal. I am a like writer, filmmaker, person. Um, I kind of do whatever comes my way, but these days I'm doing a series of video essays on gender and art and how like the internet's um, incentive systems disrupt all of our like usual ideas about these things. Um, so an example of that would be a recent video I did about the TikTok algorithm optimizing for view time over everything, which results in these like super hypnotic weird videos that are almost like hacked to hold your attention um that kind of thing uh let's see yeah yeah you know I'm, I'm trying to write some fictional projects i work as an editor on other people's stuff mostly i'm just happy to be here <laughs> that's good to hear um i guess for the first topic and i'm sure this uh comes up a lot and you've explored this issue a lot already in, in your videos or this experience. Um, but I think this channel we've, we've discussed gender identity a lot, usually involving especially masculinity and the manosphere and how gender can link to social perspectives and politics. Um, but to back it up, uh, I'm just kind of curious what your experience was um, transitioning and um, kind of learning about gender identity, like through that process. Sure, absolutely. Um, it wasn't until I was 15 or 16 that I realized other people had gender, like on purpose, you know, I figured it was something we were all just sort of subjected to. And no one felt an especially strong affinity for whatever box they were assigned into. Um, I was one of these people with a kind of glass closet, you know, I just like, I never really managed to fit in with dudes. Um, and yeah, so I, I don't feel like before transitioning, I actually understood gender all that much because, well, I, I, I've honestly hadn't experienced it. I was just like, I was just, going with the flow sort of you know um so coming out and realizing very quickly how uh differently people respond to you you know as a trans woman as a visibly trans woman um really threw me for a loop for a couple of years there um and i've i've reached a much more comfortable place these days but it definitely reveals that people are, are not always as uh, as cool with stuff as they think they are, you know? Um, even people who describe themselves as progressive uh, did not necessarily take my coming out so well. Oh, that's very interesting. Um, d uh, like, do you feel like your politics kind of were informed or it was kind of like a a feedback between like learning about your gender identity and maybe learning about where certain people sit uh, personally, like on the, on the political spectrum uh, in regards to how they reacted to your transitioning. I'm sorry. I'm not, I'm not sure if I totally understand the second like, part of that question. How did you um, like, did you, did you feel like your, your 
political perspective became more informed. Like he became, it became a bit more nuanced. It wasn't just like um, when people say they're progressive, you just see this kind of monolith of you believe this, this, and this, and this, um, or is it more like, like you see that there's a bit more variety in, in beliefs and, and values across the, the spectrum. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I definitely would have described myself as like a progressive person before coming out and what allowed me to kind of process my gender stuff um, was being immersed in the whole like feminist wave of the 2010s. I was, I was like a huge fan of Laverne Cox on Orange is the New Black. Um, So I I would say even like, even from there, politics are, are like what made it possible for me to understand my gender at all. And so absolutely they've, I like my, how I inhabit my gender has also affected my politics. Um, for for the first year or two, honestly, it was I just found myself a, a very like distrusting and resentful person because all of these people I held up as like awesome feminists were suddenly treating me super weird. <laughs> um, but you know, since then, I think I've I've gained a little bit more hope in the value of human connection of conversation um and certainly a a big part of where my politics are at now is that i um you know live and am totally accepted as a woman but can't relate to uh to many of the women around me um i feel like i i still have a bit of an outsider perspective Mm, which i think can be valuable yeah no that that is interesting um do you feel uh, like feminism has become more inclusive in regards to like uh, trans women recently? Or do you think that there's been more of a kind of rise of like uh, TERFs, for example, like JK Rowling? Um, like which direction do you think this is kind of heading? Mm-hmm. Among feminists specifically, I think it's kind of tough to say because the feminist movement is like less of a thing than it was 10 years ago, you know? I mean, there, there are definitely feminists out there, but I don't feel like we're organizing as much around that label these days. Um, the people who are tend to be, uh, are, are more likely to be the shitheads, if I may. Um, unfortunately, I feel like, yeah, the face of feminism over the past you know few years has kind of been the turfs, but that's definitely not representative of the whole Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I tend to think that since 2020, most people's politics have just become like a little more um, holistic, all encompassing, where it's it's kind of obvious that we can't just define ourselves by gender politics, mm. you know? Uh, so, yeah, I, I guess that's a tough question because I, I don't even know who I would ask, you know? I feel like people aren't identifying that hardcore as feminists these days. Mm-hmm. How would you uh, define feminism, like, uh, personally? Uh, this is a great question. I, I actually was working on something about this, like, just yesterday. Oh, perfect. Um, I mean, I, I can tell you what I, I think it should be, and I can tell you what it is. I think what it is is, like, everything that people have claimed is feminist, you know? Like, the the collection of, of movements that claim to work for women whether or not i think they're good um 
you know, uh, my my ideal feminism is is much more specific and has to do with like, I guess, abolishing the the gender difference, like just kind of moving past that is something that matters on any broad societal level. Yeah. Okay, so kind of um, <clears throat> like a like a move away from traditional gender roles is uh, what you would consider feminism is that uh yeah but i mean i guess for me it is it is really hand in hand with so many other struggles you know Mm -hmm. um i like i think we can just move away from gender roles i don't think that'll do much unless we also move toward like economic justice you know Mm -hmm. um migrant justice for example like a huge amount of the sexism that plays out in the world now is among like immigrants interacting with border authorities it's among like undocumented people the people who are not protected by um new laws right mm-hmm. um yeah this is the tricky thing I, I feel like i can't define it um on its own as as one belief it's more just like a part of where i'd like us to be at um mm-hmm. and i feel like if i can be a little more specific the the wave that i came up in which is like queer trans stuff in the 2010s i think tends to be a little more like pro-gender than i am if that makes sense i've talked about the mogai movement before as uh, an online movement if you don't know that basically had people defining uh hundreds of genders for themselves uh these these new like highly specific things that of course didn't have any oppressive roles attached um and that is not the wave i'm on so much just because i i don't think gender is like i'm not pro gender if that makes sense it's just like something we've got something we've got to deal with mm-hmm. yeah could you could you go into the the mogai movement a little bit more because i do remember i think it was the first video i saw of yours um mm-hmm. and i yeah i really appreciated like the the research because i had no i was not on tumblr in that uh, era and it was like completely new to me yeah, totally. Um, sure. So the Mogai movement emerged in 2013-2014 uh, as a collection of people, mostly very young, um, kind of looking for new language to talk about how they relate to the world. Um, it kind of took the logic of trans identity, which is like, okay, I live as male or female, but I don't feel that way and extended it much, much further. So anything that you uh, felt you had an affinity for could be described as a gender or a sexuality. Um, this is where we get people identifying with like clouds or shiny things or foxes or, you know, that kind of thing. Um, it was a movement that kind of perceived all identity through the lens of gender and sexuality. Um and petered out i would say in the late 2010s people have fought me on that because uh i mean at at some point you've you've named the names and there's not much left to do i think Mm -hmm. uh it was not a really a movement that had any broader ambitions Mm -hmm. like did you see it more as kind of a bottom up like just kids trying to figure out their identity than a sort of like 
Because one of the, the criticisms I see, especially talking with older people with regards to like trans identity and um, stuff of that nature is like the variety and plethora of uh, neo pronouns mm-hmm. that come from a more like, um, like top down, like bureaucratic um, angle. And so I'm kind of wondering, like, do, do you see this as, as kind of like a, an ancestor of that? where it was kind of like then organizations trying to adjust to just how like broad and, and number the amount of gender identities could be. Um, or do you think these are like un, unrelated? Um, um, I'm, I'm curious what you mean by uh, top down in these people's criticisms. Like when, when neo pronouns were being imposed from the top down, where, where do you see that? Uh I guess I just mean like on a, on a bureaucratic level, like when, uh, like if you're just signing up for certain things and there'll be like a list of pronouns, not like in a aggressive sense, but just like these are, I think like if you go back like a decade, you wouldn't really see companies or government agencies really doing this. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm, yeah, I guess I'm wondering like, it did this, did this kind of like begin that or was it uh like is this did this come from something else because it's also like i know a conservative like conspiracy that this is like um like a you know political correctness is leading to some sort <laughs> of like marxist uh you know totalitarianism or something like that uh-huh. um so that's why i'm like i'm wondering like cuz cuz i feel like talking about the actual origin of how that came about would at least kind of quell some of those mm-hmm. uh people that are at least curious about um, like neo pronouns and how society has overall seemed to, in some sense, adjust it a little bit more to greater fluidity with gender identity. Uh huh. Sure. Okay. So the history of neo pronouns is not something I know a ton about, but I know that uh, they're much much older than uh, any of the Mogai stuff. I've seen them in texts dating back, I want to say to the seventies, uh, but very likely earlier than that. Mm. I think like at its core, it's an idea that makes sense. Um, I mean, the it, they exist to, at least in part, address an issue that I think a lot of people have with the English language, which is that the singular they is just like a kind of awkward thing to use uh, to refer to someone as like they have, you know, you're not going to say they has, it's just, uh, it feels inconsistent. Mm-hmm. Um, I think... M- and I don't have like sources to back me up on this, but my intuition is that neo pronouns emerged as like a third thing that is not he or she essentially. Um, and in that sense, I, I don't really understand the huge uh, backlash to it because this is a, an argument that you hear conservatives make all the time. You know, mm-hmm. I can't call one person they, um, but, but when people are offered options to not call one person, they that also seems like an issue. Which makes me think it's actually just about the people, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. As far as those those like super long drop down lists of pronouns that you get while signing up for, I assume Facebook. I think Facebook. Um, yeah, I guess. I mean, corporate inclusion is its own whole thing that always feels very out of touch with the community, you know. I. I would I would say that I, I don't understand the the harm certainly, um, but it, it is also, I'll admit, like kind of funny. Uh, mm-hmm. 
I mean, I, I've had my fun with it. When I first came out, or like a month or two before I first came out, I realized that Facebook had an option to allow you to fill your gender in just like a generic text box. You know, it wasn't male, female, other. It was just like write in whatever you like. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I like I dropped in a couple Easter eggs for people to notice. Like um, I would just say that my gender was, uh, you know, that scene in Breaking Bad where Walter White is under the house where uh, he was hiding the money mm-hmm. and he's just like sobbing under there. Mm-hmm. Um that's that's my own uh that's my only real personal experience with those uh i'm pro i'm pro getting funky with it basically mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah where I'm, I'm curious where do you think that comes from like the antagonism and discomfort um that especially people on the right but as you pointed out also progressives can have when it comes to um like normalizing kind of gender fluidity or even gender abolitionism or just getting funky with uh, gender, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I guess a lot about our society depends on gender roles, right? Like um, we, we basically, especially the panic around like young girls not being women or not growing up into women. Um, I think probably comes from the fact that we rely on women to do a lot for society and we worry about what will happen if if there are just fewer women um you know the fact that women are expected to do like a a ton of unpaid labor in their daily lives um that can't be like discounted as a factor we just uh so much of our society is built on men do this women do this um and when you're like meh no, uh, whether, whether or not you're trans, you know, there's going to be some blowback there. Um, I think it does offer, uh, a threat to how things are organized right now and conservatives kind of like, you know, the nuclear family and Mm -hmm. women in the home or whatever. Yeah. There was an interesting, it was like in an anthropology class when I was in undergrad, it was written by like a queer author i forgot their name but they even talked about how like the concept of like having children is very much tied to gender roles and could be kind of like the root of a lot of like homophobia because there is like the the fact that there's a community that they're like having sex that they're like like being in relationships but they're not having kids and it's Mm -hmm. not like producing and and children are seen as kind of like this um untouchable area like it's non-ideological it goes on both sides of the political um fields where you you talk about like you know children are the future and everything um i'm curious like what you think about that i i wish i remembered like the paper but i remember like thinking oh that's like a really like taking something that seemed not ideological like very just kind of accepted by all of society but then still seeing that as like somewhat like gender-based and potentially rooted in uh some form of like homophobia yeah i can absolutely see that um and i also see that in in transphobia i think the the fact that many of us you know uh are biologically infertile through transition is scary to a lot of people um yeah i guess like the this idea of like you know sex is for having kids um, your bodies are for having kids. It's it's still very 
prevalent. Um, I do think um, I know so many queer people, so many trans people who actually want kids and uh, who for one reason or another can't, you know, which is a bummer. They can't afford it or um, they maybe wouldn't be trusted to adopt or foster. <sighs> yeah. Uh, it's it's a complicated thing because it's not like uh, no queer people want anything to do with children. Mm-hmm. Um, and then before, like, because I'm curious about like uh, talking about like a, what it starts with an M, the the Tumblr. Um, Moga, what, yeah. what was it? Moga, yeah. Yeah. Um, before going into that, because I'm curious about um, your idea of like how like online uh, and like social media can like a kind of affect like just social movements and how they're, um, you know how they how they're created how they maybe sometimes fail how they sometimes flourish um i think just before that i am curious like how do you uh this might be tricky to answer but how do you uh feel like you subjectively experience gender um if if you do or if you don't but but i am curious about that like uh because i feel like there's for me when i learned more about more about like trans people it was um you, you also start to think like, why aren't more people trans in the sense that why is there like a certain population where um, they very much feel internally that they are um, something different than what they were assigned at birth. Um, and then there's a large amount of the population that the correlation between their assignment at birth and their gender identity throughout their life is the same. Um, so I'm, I'm very curious about like that element of, um, especially being like a trans individual, individual, sorry. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good question. And, uh, it's one I wish I had a more straightforward answer to. I know that in my early days when I was like still in the closet, uh, my, my gender feelings were very, very strong and clear to me, um, and kind of served as a driving force for me to get to where I'm at now. These days, I, I don't know that I experience it so strongly. I just know that, like, the life I'm living, the kind of interactions I have with people, uh, the positions I'm put in are kind of just more comfortable for me, you know? Um, like, I don't know that I could point to any, like, particular reason that I'm a woman where I, I might have been able to a long time ago. But these days, I mean, you know, there are all sorts of women out there. Uh someone with my personality traits and beliefs could be a man. I'm sure they exist. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it feels like something. And I, my last video was about this actually just like kind of where gender is located, where it comes from. Um, And I think people reach all sorts of conclusions on this. Um, Honestly, I, these days, like, I guess you could say post-transition, how I live has little to do with any sense of identity and has more to do with, like, what's comfortable, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, I I don't prescribe to myself, like, oh, today I'm going to wear a skirt because I'm a woman and that's what ladies do. (laughs) It's just like, that's what I like to wear, you know? Um, I find this is 
uh, this is something that happens in a lot of people who've been out more than a few years. It's like the actual sense of gender sort of fades. I wonder if it's something that people just need to get them through the first few years of, of the whole thing. Um, like, How do you think like, um, like gender euphoria and gender dysphoria like fit into that? And cause I'm very curious about that also as a, like just as a, as a cis man, there are certain things that I'll do that are, I guess they would be seen as masculine that I do feel good about. Like, I don't know, just like a, if you fix something or like, I don't know, just things that are like traditionally seen as like, like masculine, even if it's like dumb and it's kind of historically extremely gendered, I do still feel like that internal, like, and I'm wondering like, is that, is that similar with trans people? Like when, especially when they're transitioning in the beginning, um, like, are they, or is it kind of directed a lot by if they feel kind of like euphoric and then maybe later on just comfortable doing certain actions and like, not comfortable expressing themselves or, or like dysphoric doing other actions. I, I would think so to some extent. Yeah. I mean, I can't, uh, I can't speak for anyone other than myself, but definitely in those early days, uh, my like whole gender awakening was fueled by just following what felt good. You know, um, I would, uh, I would go to forever 21 RIP and, uh, <laughs> just like try on a few things and kind of be amazed and marvel at like, Oh man, like I'm allowed to do this. I'm in control of my life. You know, I think, I think gender euphoria, at least for me is like a partially a, a realization that we have agency. Mm -hmm. I'm just like, yeah, I can, I can kind of do whatever and I want to do this and no one can stop me, you know? Um, and certainly our choices are also guided by dysphoria, which I have trouble explaining as anything other than just like regular old pain and suffering, you know? Um, we talk about it like it's a totally foreign thing to everyone who's not trans, but I know for me it's uh, it feels much more mundane, I guess. Um, I, I I know that certain things feel bad whether or not I know why. And I just got to like follow what's going to let me live, you know? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Like, like, um, cause I, I totally agree with that. Like, I, I think there's just certain things. It's like the same as just a watching a, a certain, I mean, I guess it would, the emotional severity of the dysphoria would differ in terms of what the activity is and how much you identify with it. Mm -hmm. But like, um, yeah, I don't know, like doing certain hobbies or certain activities, like maybe not even based on gender, but just the idea of how much does this align with how you like subjectively like feel about yourself, which doesn't really correlate with like any specific like thing that you can locate and be like, this is me and this isn't me. It's more just kind of like a, like a feeling. Um, yeah. And if I could yeah. speak to that, I... I mean, I, I know that uh, cis dudes supposedly sometimes go through like a bit of a crisis when they start losing their hair, when they start going bald. Um, that seems like a decent analog to me uh, as far as like, yes, I know I'm, I'm still the person I am without hair, but uh, just being red in this different way, it feels very disruptive. Um, you could say the same of... Uh, hmm. 
well, this is this is kind of delicate, but uh, when when cis women need like a, a mastectomy for breast cancer, um, they will often choose to get uh, breast implants put in. You know, I've I've known women who have, and it's not necessarily that anyone feels like they are or aren't a woman without breasts. It's it's more just like a, an awareness of how the world works, and uh, I guess we're not immune to being shaped by all these images society throws at us of what men and women should be. I'm certainly not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it it actually makes me think when you bring up the balding thing, because I mean, going back to like Beauvoir, there's the idea of like men are basically like, it's like a checklist of things. And then women are just, they're what that checklist isn't. Um, So they're like, (laughs) like the other. Um, And so like, I, I do kind of wonder because there is a lot of research on like when men feel like they're not like masculine enough, there's obviously like co- compensatory behavior, like they're going to act really aggressively and like violent. Um, mm. I do wonder if that's like, I don't know, kind of a consequence of dysphoria in a way, like if, if a guy feels entitled to um, partners or money, or he doesn't feel in some way that he's expressing his gender identity, which is this rigid checklist depending on the culture um Mm -hmm. if that's like a a way to kind of an easy solution for for him to deal with it yeah that makes total sense to me yeah um yeah no that's that's really interesting um i guess moving on uh how do you feel uh with regards to social media online spaces um, specifically with trans issues, but also just in general, um, in terms of how they can, you know, help certain movements flourish, how they can sometimes cause issues, um, you know, may even lead to regression at times uh, within the movement. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because I, I I think you said you're working on uh, something related to this. I am. I'm working on a, a, a big, big video about... Uh the pop feminism wave in the 2010s, um, which I I touched on before. It was like very influential to me as a teenager. Um, And that was a movement that unrolled like mostly online and I think probably suffered for it. Um, I'm not at the point there where I feel comfortable like making any big conclusions, but I I will say, I don't think it's, it's all bad. You know, I think, um, like for the trans community, I think the internet is huge for kind of obvious reasons, right? Um, it, it could offer people a, a place to figure out their, their stuff like abstractly in like relative safety, at least like their life's not going to be in danger mm-hmm. anonymously um, before taking it offline. Um, so I think it's probably given people access to information and resources on the trans community that they wouldn't have had otherwise um of course the the flip side of that is it's given people more access to everything good and bad um mm-hmm. sorry do you mind if i open my door for air real quick it's uh, it's getting a little yeah that's here. okay <laughs> that's fine oh man yeah it's like a solid 30 <laughs> degrees in this closet yeah no that's that's okay i'm assuming your closet doesn't have air conditioning it does not no. <laughs> okay that's better okay glad to hear you can breathe that's uh, important <laughs> all right 
Um, yeah, I think there's like, there's a, a philosophical angle here that I, I'm like out of my depth on as far as how we embody things on the internet. Um, I guess like in, in real life, the way you show who you are is by saying and doing things and online, the way you show who, who you are, or you define yourself at least is uh, by saying things and like watching other people say things essentially. Um, there's like a more limited scope of what can be done, I guess uh, it, it lends um it lends itself well to like mass efforts to let's say let's all email the governor of the state or let's uh let's flood the servers of this website to shut them down but it definitely like you know you can't uh you can't do everything with with those types of actions um i know with pop feminism it's it's tricky thing was uh it needed to make money you know this was a an ecosystem full of people who were like professional activist writers and so you have to uh kind of aim your focus at at things that are going to attract a wide enough audience to turn a profit um could, could you explain uh kind of the pop feminism movement just briefly yeah absolutely yeah. So in the early 2010s, we kind of saw an upswell of people identifying as feminist and trying to take the stigma out of that word. Um, like my my two go-to examples are Emma Watson and Beyonce. Um, Emma Watson gave this really famous speech uh, about how we need like men to rally behind feminism and we need like more allies. Um, Beyonce took like feminist aesthetics and implemented them into like her music and her stage show and suddenly it was just this very like sexy appealing thing for a lot of people um there was a big push to like destigmatize that word and just like get people more on board with the movement um and that's kind of like where i got involved and that's like what started pushing me to the left as a as a teenager um yeah but the the fact that it was uh it needed to sorry let me let me take that again um a lot of the like awareness raising was happening at publications like buzzfeed and jezebel uh places that ultimately do need to make money and so there was an incentive to yeah, give give messaging that is appealing, but is not necessarily as effective. Um, it was it was a very positive time. It was all about you know empowering yourself, uh, changing your life, less so about changing the world. Um, because as I have learned, as like a person who makes videos and would also like the world to change, you kind of can't. Uh, make every project about how people need to like log off and stop reading your articles or watching your videos it just doesn't work you know um so that saw a big um a big push towards like you know reading our articles 
is participating in the movement, is activism, is brave. Um, watching a feminist TV show is going to change the world. That kind of thing. Um, mm. Yeah, I'm curious what you think of like um, kind of the idea of forming your political identity not based on action, but kind of based off of like almost like consumerism in terms of just like where you put your attention. Um, because I do, I'm like working on a video involving just like both video essayists and like live streamers and how much, how much of it is actually like changing things if there is actually any real change or is it just people that kind of are in their like echo chambers and they just like watching people kind of that they already agree with and there isn't really any real change at all and then of course like content creators like ourselves we're making money off of it either way there's very little like risk or sacrifice versus like if you were to do something maybe more radical um but i'm I'm curious what, what your thoughts are on that yeah, I totally agree. Um, I think I think probably the best um, the best way to form an understanding of the world in an ideology is like it involves a bit of both, you know, a, a bit of uh, passive, you know, reading and thinking about stuff, and a bit of getting into the world, trying out your ideas, seeing how it works. Um, an example I could give there is there's been some discussion of like, excuse me. There's been some discussion of like transformative justice and just like new, new ideas about uh, how to bring justice to people who've been wronged that doesn't rely as much on, on punishment. And on paper, I had a very easy time with that. I thought, yeah, you know, like we, we don't need to, just uh lock everyone up who's done harm we need to work with them to uh make them improve that's a very easy position to take but then i put myself in the position of actually trying to change those people actually like involving myself in the process Mm -hmm. and it's uh it's taught me a lot about how you know you you can't just expect people to change because they're giving it a shot um Mm -hmm. being involved in like some accountability processes for like people in in my friend group in my community has has clarified i think what our instructions need to be and where the theory needs to be at um there there's a real risk of kind of uh theorizing yourself away from reality if that makes sense like so much of philosophy feels really insular to me it's about you know some people described how the world works and then some people criticize those descriptions and other people criticize those descriptions. And it's all just so meta that like, what are we even talking about anymore? Mm. Um, so much, so much like popular discourse online is about the discourse. The arguments are about the arguments, you know, about like, it, instead of weighing what uh, certain people have to say, just like weighing uh, their, moral character and just like wading into a petty beef zone these are things that i think um we can like we can be reminded to not take so seriously by actually getting out and talking to people um 
which is not something that I've like arrived at. You know, this is this is an ongoing effort for me too. I'm like a extremely online chronic poster. That's my that's my job. I mean, yeah, uh, yeah. But I think at, at least uh, taking lessons from what works, what doesn't work, is like is what I'm trying to do more and more of. No, you're really like striking on kind of what I was I was thinking with uh, talking about like video essayists, like live streamers, stuff like that, that it is kind of it goes back to that idea of like how important is theory in action, um, like just philosophy in general. Like it's not a perfect comparison, but like when you go on like Twitter threads and there's like somebody said something that was either maybe ironically you know they were trying to make like an edgy joke or they were being genuinely discriminatory in some way and then like another person responds and then another person responds about something that they did and then another person the third person chimes in and then now there's like alliances forming and it's almost like a like a reality show just all on like a twitter (laughs) thread and you you the beginning of it like you don't even really remember what the initial argument that was at least somewhat tied to reality was that oh Mm. maybe this person's being like a a kind of an asshole in some way to people and it's just it's so so much space and so much time and resources is taken uh talking about like this discourse which like that's exactly what you said but it reminds me of just like philosophers will just get into just they'll just go on forever just just arguing about things that are not necessarily grounded in reality um and like if you look at like i don't know for example the the pragmatist school of thought uh between like dewey and james it's almost like a like twitter thread it's it's (laughs) just it's just petty grievances over like the what they think pragmatism actually is and it's not settled still um at least from my understanding and it's like i don't because in some way i'm like well pragmatism is hilarious because it's it's all about how theory should lend to action at the end of the day but then when you look at the history of the pragmatist school it's so theoretical um that it's almost you can entirely dismiss it and it's like well this is like chatter and then it's it's like what are what are the things that are actually leading to any sort of like a constructive change um and that's what i'm because i don't think like theory or you know video essays or streams or twitter threads or anything i don't think they're completely useless but i think like 90 percent of it is like super <laughs> it's addict like I'm, I'm I'm sure you get addicted to just like the drama and the like back and forth and everything because it's like these online personalities but it's i don't know i, I don't know i feel bad like participating or like uh yeah. giving my attention to it sometimes uh, yeah i'm i'm with you man i I've had to start making the conscious choice to if I if I'm on Twitter and I see someone I follow is like beefing with someone I've never heard of over someone I've never heard of. Uh, I just I just have to make the conscious choice of, okay, I'm not going to let this take up space in my brain. I have enough going on, you know? (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah. The doom scroll is a powerful thing and like super uh, demotivating, I think. Mm -hmm. And I will say, I, I think there is like okay like as if this is a controversial statement but i think there is some role of theory right um i i think there are people who 
act and and do like morally good things but without a a plan for how this will get us the next thing you know um i guess you could take charity uh some charities as an example of that action without theory you know okay we're just trying to help people get through the day but what what comes after that how are we building to something better right um Mm -hmm. there does need to be i think a a clarity of like long-term purpose um yeah yeah which is maybe why uh so many charities feel like they're just like putting a band-aid over things you know um like well it's it's excellent to relieve uh medical debt or student debt uh it's great to like subsidize people's rent uh what we should ultimately be working towards is is a world where people are not getting rich off student loans and owning apartments you know Mm -hmm. yeah i guess as a kind of final question um what do you think uh in your own terms uh is uh kind of good like um uh constructive change that like people can engage in especially like in their like like our age like in your like 20s and uh with like somewhat limited resources and obviously not like the the access to like government and stuff like that that like older people have mm-hmm. um just because also i was talking to my dad about this like literally this morning so <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, no pressure to keep this in, of course. But what did your dad have to say? I'm curious. Uh, let me remember. I think because we were talking about kind of um, antinatalism and how a lot of people our age are very because he, he actually he genuinely asked. He's like, do you feel like people your age get like very kind of down with like um, environmental news? And I thought it was funny because I was like, that's, I mean, it's nice he's asking, but that's very like, I'm surprised that there's like, that's, that's a question at the same time, because it's very like apparent. Um, Yeah, like he must be new here, you know? Yeah, yeah. It was, it was more kind of just asking questions, which I I do appreciate. But yeah, um, yeah, I think I was just saying, like, I think, um, yeah, a lot. I mean, I have a lot of friends that are like, they're, they don't want to have kids kind of going back to that. Maybe that's becoming more of the norm also mm-hmm. um, out of kind of a moral kind of like you don't want to raise people that aren't going to want to be alive in a world that might not actually be very good. Um, yeah. And a lot of people feel very like powerless, um, especially because it, it really does just feel in terms of act, like real change, it's a lot of people in their twenties waiting for older people to kind of just pass away that have all of the power because there's really no other method uh, that isn't like at least like violent or just like super kind of or or really time consuming and actually just trying to engage in this process, which would be an uphill battle. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, I'm I'm kind of curious what 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 you would think um collective change could could be for like people our age yeah that's a that's an excellent question um i think it's helpful to encourage people to get involved on a local level you know i think there's a lot more you can do in like your city your neighborhood than you probably think um like so much of of local policy is 
decided at like screaming matches at meetings and because of uh, protests that are probably happening in the cities of just about everyone listening to this, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I think so one, one group uh, local to me that I'm uh, admiring lately is uh, the what is the Montreal Autonomous Tenants Union which is trying to organize against uh, specific bills that are are like just terrible for uh, students and for young people and for um, renters in Montreal um, that are, are going oh, I to had my when I was at McGill I had my my fun with the the landlords in the like student housing like um <laughs> <laughs> hell yeah hell yeah yeah <laughs> yeah I, I guess um my my thing and like okay to some extent like i'm i'm no one to be giving advice because i'm not an activist you know but um i think we need to like build power for ourselves um we need to build organizations that will actually like have a large amount of sway for uh people who are are getting screwed over because of like the climate situation the housing situation the education situation um the immigration situation there's so many situations man (laughs) (laughs) um yeah you know like uh if you're a renter talk to your neighbors um go to school board meetings go to like city council meetings um and i don't think any of this is like enough we don't just do this and then we win some elections and we stop this is like uh this is a step along the road because mm-hmm. because actually the the amount of change we need right now is drastic, right? Like if we're going to mm-hmm. get serious about climate change, uh, it would have already happened if we could just like elect the right people. Mm-hmm. I think. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I like to think there's some role of, of people like us, you know, just talking about ideas. Um, but but ultimately, like the real work is going to happen by uh building coalitions i guess realizing what is actually in our best interest uh unionize your fucking workplace you know mm-hmm. <laughs> i say that as if i have a workplace <laughs> yeah i don't think youtube would ever let the youtubers unionize but uh i don't even I'm, know i'm, what I'm sure <laughs> yeah i yeah, have no, no. idea <laughs> um well thank you very much for coming on um it was a pleasure talking to you it's been a total pleasure yeah yeah it was great uh meeting you this hour really nice yeah no thanks um and you can check out uh lily's channel 